You're listening to Extinction Radio FM. Listen to the podcast at extinctionradio.com. La bienvenida a toda la audiencia con conciencia to all those conscious beings out there. And with you, as always, guiding you through the uh, death spiral. Guiándolos a ustedes a través de desintegración del imperio. Esta su servidora, Evelina. Yo sé, I know that there are some of you out there that might think I'm a little extreme. And there are others that think I am so right on. Hay personas que están en sintonía que tal vez crean que soy un poco extrema en la manera que veo yo el mundo, pero hay otros de ustedes que dicen los puntos que les comparto son los más sinceros y auténticos en todo Radiolandia. So for you doubters out there, para ustedes, la gente que duda la posición de su servidora Evelina y las opiniones, for you doubters, I'm going to share this morning, vamos a empezar con unas palabras, we're going to start with the message, vamos a empezar con el mensaje de los Hopi elders. You have been telling the people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell the people that this is the hour. Pero ahora usted debe regresar y decirle al pueblo. Que esta es ya la hora. And there are things to be considered. Hay cosas que tenemos que estar pensando. Where are you living? ¿A dónde están viviendo? What are you doing? ¿Qué están haciendo? What are your relationships? ¿Cuáles son sus relaciones? Are you in the right relation? ¿Estás en la relación correcta? Where is your water? ¿A dónde está tu agua? Know your garden. Conozca su jardín. It is time to speak your truth. Ha llegado la hora que hablan sus verdades. Create your community. Crear su comunidad. Be good to each other. Sea buenos unos con los otros. And do not look outside of yourself for the leader. No busquen afuera de ustedes mismos para el líder. This could be a good time. Esto puede ser un buen tiempo. There is a river flowing now very fast. Ahorita hay un río que está moviéndose rápidamente. It is so great and so swift that those will be afraid. Es tan grande y corre tan rápido este río que habrán esas personas que tendrán temor. They will try to hold on to the shore. Van a tratar de mantenerse en la tierra. They will feel like they're being torn apart. Van a sentir que separados. They will suffer greatly. Van a sufrir muchísimo. Know that the river has its destination. Sepa que el río tiene su destinación. The elders say that we must let go of the shore. La gente sabia dice que tenemos que dejar la tierra. Push off into the river. Métanse, brincan al río. Keep our eyes open. Mantenga nuestros ojos abiertos. And our heads above the water. Y nuestras cabezas sobre el agua. See who is in the river with you. 
and celebrate. Dense en cuenta quién está en el río con usted y celebra. At this time in history, en este tiempo de la historia, we are not to take anything personally. No debemos tomar nada, absolutamente nada personalmente. Menos nosotros mismos. Least all ourselves. For the moment that we do, en el momento que se tomen seriamente, ustedes mismos, our spiritual growth and journey comes to a halt. Nuestro crecimiento espiritual parará. The time of the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. El tiempo de estar solos se ha acabado. Únanse. Banish the word struggle from your attitude. Quita la palabra lucha de su actitud y de su vocabulario. All that we do now must be done in sacred manner and in celebration. Todo lo que hacemos en estos días tendrá que ser en una forma sagrada y en celebración. Recuerden, remember, that we have a wrestling not against blood and flesh. Nuestra lucha no es en contra de sangre y piel, sino en contra de los gobiernos. It's against the governments, against the authorities, en contra de las autoridades, against the world rulers, en contra de los que dominan el mundo de esta oscuridad, of this darkness, against the wicked spirit forces in the heavenly places. La batalla es en contra de los espíritus que se encuentran en los cielos. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. Somos los que hemos estado esperando. So those are the words, the message. Este es el mensaje de los Hopi elders, la gente sabia, la gente espiritual, la gente original de estas tierras, the original people of these lands. Listen. This is Rex Siegel, better known as Rabid Poet. As we enter a new challenging period in our lives, and the same for all life on this beautiful planet, there is one form of communications that speaks with words that can pierce the cultural mantle and resonate in the depths of our awareness, poetry. As a visual artist and a poet, I've been working on a series of poems I call Dark Poems Rising. It is through this series, which is currently aired weekly on Extension Radio, that I hope the poetry will help us to face this coming difficulties of global warming. Climate change and continued human impact puts us on a path to eventual life extinction. The works and phrases of the poems are intended to help us search for meaning in a world of confusion and misinformation. Here is my Dark Poems Rising Poem of the Week. This poem is named Spaceship Humanity. We twirl on this blue-green planet, circling a magnificent sun, drilling holes in this thin mantle on that black gold our engines run.
Our exponential assertions pushed beyond what is real, patting each other's backs, expansion is our zeal. Don't like global warming? Put some glitter in the air. Paint everything white to show how much we care. Don't like flooded cities? Vacate lower floors. Use boats instead of cars. Docking at the doors. We know we have solutions. Nothing for us to fear. We just keep on growing, choosing what to hear. The engines of spaceship humanity know only one way, and this blue-green planet says we cannot stay. This poem is named Spaceship Humanity. We twirl on this blue-green planet, circling a magnificent sun, drilling holes in this thin mantle, on that black gold our engines run. Our exponential assertions pushed beyond what is real, patting each other's backs, expansion is our zeal. Don't like global warming? Put some glitter in the air. Paint everything white to show how much we care. Don't like flooded cities? Vacate lower floors. Use boats instead of cars, docking at the doors. We know we have solutions, nothing for us to fear. We just keep on growing, choosing what to hear. The engines of spaceship humanity know only one way, and this blue-green planet says we cannot stay. This is a poem by Rabid Poet. Humanity's Last Show. Where will it go, humanity's last show, seeking some conscious level, expressions no more, writings on some wall saying this is all? Are there misunderstandings amidst voices that were tall? Truths and untruths, a scramble of unseen, the beast lurches on, shoutings of unclean. So where to now? What universe unseen, as we struggle along to appease the machine? This is Guy McPherson, Professor Emeritus of Conservation Biology at the University of Arizona, with this week's climate change update on Extinction Radio. Feedback number eight gets a boost. This feedback discusses the size, magnitude, and frequency of wildfires. According to a paper published in the July 14, 2015 issue of Nature Communications, the length of the fire season has increased markedly since 1979. And by markedly, I mean nearly 20%. Yet another irreversible self-reinforcing feedback loop has been triggered. Plankton in the southern ocean are responsible for creating nearly half of the water droplets in the clouds during the summer, thus serving as a cooling agent. As plankton die from warming, they account for fewer water droplets, 
thus contributing to future warming. The result was reported in the July 17th, 2015 edition of Science Advances. This is Guy McPherson here on Extinction Radio.
Hee-haw! It's Benjamin the donkey again. You know, you know, doom can make it seem like nothing matters anymore. Speaking of nothing mattering anymore, here's a little something on the subject. Ain't sweeping no dirt off no floor. Don't seem like no reason what for. Climate heats high degree plus failed nukes guarantee that nothing don't matter no more. Each day we see more to deplore. Still in store, much more horror of war. With nowhere to flee, there's no escapee, so nothing don't matter no more. At first it seems somewhat hardcore, using language that's hard to ignore. But see, si, senor, see, si, et monsieur, may we, nothing don't matter no more. Daily bread's always less than before. Don't know today's circus game score. Our NTE inevitability means nothing don't matter no more. Ain't sweeping no dirt off no floor. Don't seem like no reason what for. Climate heats high degree plus failed nukes guarantee that nothing don't matter no more. Well, that's all for now. Hee haw! Extinction Radio, Extinction Radio, Extinction Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Carolyn Baker with Extinction Radio reporting live from my computer in Boulder, Colorado and connecting with Peter Melton in Northern California. How's it going, Peter? Hello, Carolyn. It is good today. Thank you. Basking in a beautiful, sunshiny, climate change driven, warm, sunny California day. Yeah, with no water in sight, right? With no water in sight, except on my <laughs> tap, of course. I turn it on and it comes out magically, so okay. everything must be good. Plus, didn't they just discover a whole bunch of more Earth-like planets? Um, uh, yeah, they did. They discovered one, at least, that is very much like ours. So, you know, when things get really unbearable here, all we have to do is just go there, right? Yeah, we're good. So yeah. <laughs> all this talk about extinction and stuff can pretty much just go out the, out the window there. Yeah. But I'm, I'm happy to, to be here and to, to share on, on Extinction Radio and happy for all those who have helped make this show happen and continue to happen. Um, but I just even in talking about that other planet or in me seeing that in the newspaper today, I'm becoming very keenly aware of this feeling inside me that that isn't hope but it's not not hope <laughs> at the same wow. time. Wow, can you say more about that? Well, you know, we talk, we, we really badmouth hope and hopium and all this, and, and yet I, I don't know that I've clearly defined specifically what that hope is, and that there's the general just a, a ignorance is bliss kind of hope, that if I just ignore it, then everything will be okay, or there's the, oh, this couldn't be happening, or the governments would be talking about it kind of, uh, just denial hope or just the technical hope. Okay, well, we'll figure this out. Surely the sharpest minds in the world are, are working on this, right? Right, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Of course. <laughs> surely, surely they are, but quit calling surely. me surely. <laughs> and, and then recently another thing came as, as I get to connect more and more with people like yourselves and other folks who are really knee deep in this. It's like, well, what do we really what is what really is my point of view on this? When do I, how do I make this crystal clear for myself so that I'm really living today with this presence and this energy of knowing that things are in pretty rough shape 
And at the same time, there's all the beauty and majesty of earth and connections and relationships and family and animals and plants and just all of it that we're, we're in this weird spot. Well, you know, Peter, um, I work with so many people who uh, come to me for life coaching and they are so stuck in the future, I guess you would have to say, uh, so terrified about what's coming next uh, that they, they, that's where they live. And they live on the computer and they live for more science, more dire news, more validation that it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and they miss the present moment. And they wonder why they're depressed or depleted or have no energy or uh, they're pissed off or can't sleep or whatever, you know, you name it. And uh, what I am finding is that, you know, and this is not like a magic bullet thing, but I'm finding increasingly that grief is a real doorway to being able to hold the present moment with the reality of the future. Yeah. And that if we can let ourselves grieve, um, then it really readjusts this whole reliance on hopium. And, and we get more acceptance. And it doesn't mean that we start denying what's going on in the future or any of that. But that, you know, it gives us a stronger capacity in the, in the psyche to hold both of these things. Yeah, and that, what we were just saying this beauty and joy and gratitude and preciousness of life alongside what we surely know is, is going to happen and is already happening. Yeah, just hearing you talk about that feels like that refining, that defining, that, that focusing of what is my actual perspective? How do I hold both of these? What do I believe to be true about where we're headed so that this future thing isn't this this fuzzy gray ball um, out there that just is bad. And then keep adding new bad things to it every day. And it continues to just get darker and darker cloud or something that, that I think that that part of blending and in hearing what you're saying, I think you're saying the same thing that to dare to embrace that cloud, to go into that darkness, if you will, and really define mentally is this one step I'm on right now. Okay. So what do I believe is true? I believe within the next couple of years that there's going to be some serious breakdown of this status quo. And how is that going to affect me? You know, really try to bring it home. Is that going to change what I do for work? Is that going to change where I have to live? Is right. that going to completely throw off a whole bunch of people that I know who are going to need to, you know, be in trouble and, and really dare to feel into what does that black cloud really mean? So that when I try to hold both of them, the black cloud you can't hold. You can't hold a cloud. No. You know, I can hold that beautiful tree I'm looking at. I can hold that, but I can't hold the cloud. And so well, you don't have to hold it. You can you can grieve it. You can go into it and feel the feelings. And when you do that, I'm telling you, it's much easier to hold uh, the other side, which is the beauty and joy and gratitude. Yeah. So that that sharpening of focus of of. What do I think is coming? What is this future thing? And, and how does hope or, or uh, tie into that? And, and so we're kind of teasing out of this cloud. Um, this next level, I, I feel, for me anyway, is, is those of us on the show are obviously the first several hundred people daring to really put ourselves out there. And so 
first of all, be sure to honor yourself there, Extinction Radio listener, that you're, you're one of very few people on the planet who are daring to push the envelope on this. And like we called earlier, you know, you're a collapse-aware pioneer, that we're not, right. uh, we're not weirdos, uh, you know, chasing some conspiracy thing, that we really are at the cutting edge of some very powerful uh, physical realities, but also some very powerful human psychological and emotional and spiritual realities. We are these agents of humanity daring to be out on the edge. Well, Peter, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about something we've got up our sleeves in terms of an online symposium that is actually called Beyond Hope. Yeah, this is, you know, part of what's causing this up in me is that uh, Carolyn and I and Dean Walker are creating a symposium, an online event where we can dare to, to help others to, to tease this out and, and to dare to look at what, what is this hope thing or what's past it, what's, what's beyond the cloud that we're talking about, um, and that obviously we, we have to go into it. Yeah, and uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the folks that are, that are going to be involved. Yeah, it's pretty exciting um, because we, we wanted to do something different, and we wanted to create some kind of almost a template that everybody could walk themselves through, a series of questions, if you will, uh, to really get in touch with, with that beauty, but also with that, that cloud and that hopium and what's beyond that for each of us. So, uh, wow, well, Stephen Jenkinson, for one, who has just been on the Extinction Radio Show as recently as uh, part two of it in today's episode and last week. Yeah. Uh, powerful, powerful guest. Um, and uh, also Dar Jamal, who's one of the great climate writers in the world. Yep, and we got Mick Collins, who you had on your show a while back, who's just a delightful man and very deep perspective. Yeah, he's a he's a really great thinker and psychologist, uh, and highly aware of the collapse and climate change uh, situation from the UK. Uh, we've also got Becca Martinson, who was on my show a couple of weeks ago, a wife of Chris Martinson. A lot of folks know Janaea Donaldson from ah, yes. Moment TV. She'll be on. She's one of your neighbors up there in Northern California. Yes, love that gal and her years and years of digging with the questions about this. So all of these people and a few more will be joining us for the symposium that's going to be an online event in September. Yeah, and don't forget Derek Jensen, and uh, we've got Linda Bazell, who's an ecotherapist uh, from Up Your Way. Uh, we've got some really amazing folks. So We're going to uh, dare with these people to, to have them right there on the show uh, open up their hearts, break their hearts open. Andrew Harvey, we didn't mention yeah, Andrew, yeah, was exactly. one of the uh, kingpins of this whole movement of daring to break your heart open, to see what's inside, to, to really feel into this situation, and to dare to share that. So these eight or ten leaders will be spearheading this symposium along with Carolyn and Dean Walker and I to, to dare to go there with each other, um, which is what it feels like it's all about right now. And you know what, Peter? It's not going to be just a bunch of people being interviewed and lecturing or anything like that. We're also going to have what we call informed inquiry in which uh, our audience will be able to have discussions about this right on the spot. And we can all talk about this and process this together, strengthen our connection with each other. And again, uh, know that we're not alone. 
Yeah, this whole theme of inspiring the choir. Once again, speaking directly to you, Extinction Radio listener, that you're one of just a few hundred, really, people who are on the cutting edge of this. And what are you going through? How can you better position yourself and, and better deal with your own stuff so that you can then be that leader in your community, in your household, to share this vital information in whichever way you find appropriate for yourself? So thank you all so much for, for being on, for being part of the Extinction Radio and the Near-Term Human Support Group. Thank you, Carolyn, for the interview here today. I, I really appreciate it. And it's just beautiful to be here with like-minded folks and, and opening our hearts with each other. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, you've been helping me enormously in recent months, as has Dean. Um, and I'm so glad for your work in the world. And uh, I thank all of you Extinction Radio listeners and supporters uh, for being with us. And, you know, we're going to say goodbye, but uh, maybe that means just so long and maybe we'll connect in some other way and some other time. Uh, I hope so. Um, anyway, thank you all. Hello there, you're about to hear another episode of Updates and Chats from John Compost Cossum on Extinction Radio. I'm doing this recording from a pub, so if you hear some vehicles going past then that's uh, just a bit of background noise you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, we're at the Seahorse Hotel in York and this is one of the uh, fortnightly meetings of the uh, York um, climate Change Support Group, or actually we call it Climate Change Support Group York. don't quite know why. Um, now, I'm, I'm here with my main collaborator, Lee Coghill, and Lee uh, came along to the Guy McPherson talk in April and um, was, was very moved, I think, by, uh, by what Guy talked about and um, participated in the people care session afterwards and was very keen on uh, this uh, uh, climate change support group. We, we decided not to call it the near-term human extinction support group. We didn't want to put in anybody off who might not believe in near-term near human extinction. We wanted to leave it open to people who were upset about climate change, who were angry about the lack of movement on, uh, on in governments and business, and those also who uh, have uh, an interest in solutions to climate change, which of course the near-term human extinction people will call hopium. But uh, many of us are involved in green lifestyles, and I think it's, it's uh, nice and broad. We have had uh, half a dozen people here. Tonight we just had three, and one of them has just left. So it's me and Lee, and uh, I think it's time to really say hello to her and find out about her. So, um, hello there, Lee. Hello there. Hi. Um, I'm wondering whether you can tell us a bit about uh, what you thought of Guy's talk and, and why you've wanted to continue uh, meeting up with people who have the same concerns? Sure. Um, it's quite hard to describe what I thought of Guy's talk, but ultimately I suppose it was quite life-changing. My life has definitely changed a lot in the three months or so since um, I came to understand what I now 
am aware of regarding the seriousness of our situation. Not that I wasn't aware of it before, but I think like most people, it was one of those things that kind of uh, hummed along in the background and I thought that because I cycled a lot and recycled that somehow I didn't need to worry about anything else. Um, in terms of continuing along the path that was opened up to me, I suppose ultimately it's just the fact that I'm a sociable person and if I'm upset I need a shoulder to cry on and I was very upset <laughs> and have found uh, many nice shoulders to cry on by coming along to the group. I think it's important that when we um, feel passionately about something, not only that we are able to find support for a, an upsetting issue, but that we are able to feel that people can see our point of view and take us seriously, whereas my family, although they have been nothing but supportive of me when I've been sad or moody, still for whatever reason have not quite come around to acknowledging, in my opinion, the seriousness of the situation. And it was important for me that I found people who would respect that in the same way that I do. That's, that's very interesting and I'm, I'm glad that you found um, support here. Um, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. You're, you're, you're 24, aren't you? I am indeed. I'm 24. Um, I'm married for just over a year um, and I live in York uh, in the UK, which is a lovely city. Okay. Um, what 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 kind of um, support have you had in in this group when you've come down to the pub and you've met up with other people? Can you just describe some of the maybe the, the things that you've experienced or or shared that have been helpful? Yeah. Oh golly. Um, well, to put it into perspective, my first meeting, uh, which I arrived too late, I can remember very graphically because I walked in and I'm pretty sure I just burst into tears. Um, there were a dozen or so people, if my memory serves me, at the first meeting that we had, which was a couple of weeks after Guy McPherson visited York. Um, and that was just such a sense of relief for me instantly, because I think when you walk through a world that doesn't acknowledge the things that seem obvious to those of us within the community, I hope that's not too abstract a way of putting it, um, it can be so isolating and to walk into a room where there are a few other people who get why you're upset is so meaningful um, for, <laughs> I know that seems really self-indulgent, but that's, that's human I suppose, we need to feel comforted by our peers and Ultimately, that is what support group has, has given to me. Um, I think that in the last few months, I've been coming to terms with... Um, it sounds completely outrageous to say it like this, but I suppose with the possibility or likelihood of human extinction, which is not bad for a few months' work. Um, and that's an incredible transformation for anyone believe 
and so to have some respite from all that that entails I don't really know whether it would have been possible for me to have um, coped in the way that I have if it hadn't been for the other members of this group. Okay, that that's interesting too. Um, uh, what what do you think? What are your hopes of the future of this group? That's a really good question. Um, I suppose on a personal level, what I need is a community of people who will understand why I get irate about, golly, um, <laughs> everything, <laughs> can I say that? <laughs> um, when we started the group, we weren't sure what the demand for it would be and whether it was really just a place for people to find a shoulder to cry on or whether it was a place for us to discuss action going forwards um, in terms of you know strategy planning and um, how we might tackle the local council and their policies um, and I think that we found generally from the, the regular participants that just having a place to share thoughts and ideas and questions. I've had so many questions that have been answered by the group, which is stuff that, you know, I could have Googled, but actually having a human to explain it to me and be sympathetic at that time and to walk me through it and not judge me for being ignorant has been really liberating so if that's all that the climate change support group york is in the long run then i think that would be okay although i appreciate that might be quite a self-absorbed perspective on it i think it's perfectly okay to answer things from your perspective uh, and uh, lee thank you very much for your uh, insight onto this and uh, I think that the people in listening to Extinction Radio will be uh, pleased to pleased to hear you and maybe you'll get to listen to it yourself. That was another episode of Updates and Chats from John Compost Cossum. Hello there, listeners in Extinction Radio Land. It's Peter Melton back with you. And at this time, I am on a Zoom recording with an old friend of mine, Dean Walker, who resurfaced in my life last October around this topic of climate chaos and extinction and all the fun around that. Dean, good to be with you on the computerized recording devices. Yeah, good to, good to hear your voice as well, Peter. Thanks. Dean and I knew each other uh, through our, our wives at the time uh, in Ashland, Oregon, and had some commonality in the men's movement, and Dean continues to be involved deeply in the men's movement. Hope we'll talk a little bit about that today. He's up to some exciting stuff in that world, um, but also he's up to some more great stuff that I'll have him tell you about. Uh, Dean, why are, why are we having you on Extinction Radio? Why are, what are you up to? 
Well, it, I, I first got to mention, you know, again, thanks for having me on. I want to just acknowledge this is a very uh, big time of change for Extinction Radio. It looks like it's morphing into an entirely different thing. So quite possibly we're, we're one of the last pieces of content on the old form of Extinction Radio. And I just want to acknowledge that. And I look forward to whatever the new form will be. And so with that said, um, why I'm here talking with you today, besides the fun of just talking with you, um, you know, it, it was last October when you and Guy McPherson were uh, doing a tour of uh, talks in California and Southern Oregon. And I got to hook up with you and uh, really get a sense of what Guy was putting out there. And uh, it really got my juices flowing in terms of how to be of service to humanity, because this, to me, is the biggest conversation it's ever been. This is the biggest deal I've ever heard of. And uh, I am very concerned that I want my, the rest of my life to be a, uh, an expression of service and love and beauty to the planet and to my brothers and sisters in humanity. And so it's nothing less than that that's been... Uh, motivating me since then and um, I'm no longer working with Guy but I'm I'm uh, putting together my own body of work based on uh, I've, I've done about 20 years of corporate and personal development training and training design and it's been a, an amazing run and some of the most incredible work I can imagine and I, I just feel very blessed to have had that experience and I'm bringing all of that experience and all of the stand for beauty and heart and integrity that I was mentioning before to first and foremost, I'm putting out a book as soon as I can. Uh, ideally, within the next two months, I'll have it out. And, um, you know, t tentatively, the, uh, the title is Beyond Hope, A Call a New Human Operating System. And I think we all know in this col a collapse or extinction conversation, the, the circles in which those words are thrown around easily, we all know that nothing less than that, a new, an entirely new human operating system is called for. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's just hearing that title and, and knowing what you've been running through your, your own system, that's, that just feels powerful and alive. It, it's time for what is that next thing that we're needing to, to the next puzzle piece for this extinction collapse story? Yeah. Well, it, it's, um, it's a few pieces have really sunk in for me, <clears throat> excuse me, as I've been um, doing my own research to vet the, the jaw-dropping information that uh, someone like Guy McPherson puts out. And, uh, you know, I've certainly come up with my own timeline, vetted information that feels right in my own heart, what, it, you know, matches my capacity. And, and really what I'm offering people in the, in the book and then also in the live trainings and then the video trainings and so on that I'll be generating very soon is a way to have each person do their own learning how to learn about abrupt climate change and the other collapse-oriented, you know, systems collapse-oriented material that's out there because uh, it is not as I think all of us know, I mean, know I'm preaching to the choir in the Extinction Radio you know, uh, audience, but we all know that there are billions of dollars spent every year to keep us all from getting straight in, in scoop on the information that's going on out there. And I uh, want to offer people um, 
all the pieces that I put together to do my own, what I call an informed inquiry. And that the first piece is informing myself. I, I had to vet the material and I, I found a lot of great um, sources for information that is not biased by the corporate or the governmental influences. And then um, secondarily, once I've got that together for myself, I would specifically clearly putting together my picture of what's happening and when it's happening. Um, you know, cause let me just take a brief aside there. I think that's what we all do anyway. All of us, even in the extinction crowd, we all kind of, um, if I could just speak for myself, but assume that other others might be like me. I, I went an awful long time kind of assuming I was getting straight information from mainstream media and assuming, well, I've, I've got enough information to kind of get it. And I, I made my own timing up. And I wasn't even conscious that I had done that. And that's time after time when I'm speaking with potential readers, they're, they're doing the same thing and they didn't even realize that's what they had done. And it's, it's incredibly empowering to come up with an informed timeline about an informed set of effects of abrupt climate change as we see it, as, as I see it, as you see it, you know, each person who takes it on. And then lastly, this, the second and biggest part of the informed inquiry is, so now I've got this information solid in my lap. What do I do with it? Who will I be in the face of these incredibly daunting effects coming down the pike? And it is that being, those practices and so on, that really makes up the, the lion's share of the work that I'm putting together. Right, but that, that information part, this sounding like there's a there's a crispness to it, a a real clarity that says, well, wait a minute, what what does that mean really? Not just kind of vaguely. Yeah, with it with is. the timeline. I mean, the the blue ocean event is what comes up for me first. It's like, what's mm -hmm. that actually going to do if that happens this September, or even if it gets close this September? What does that change in the psyche of us collapse aware pioneers? Yeah. And really, as I've been doing this process for myself and, and then writing about it to get it as clear as I can for other people to read, I'm realizing beyond a certain point, there's no real need for a lot more information. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's important that people stay informed about the newest updates because they always seem like they're accelerating. And that's kind of the bad news. But the rest of the conversation is really our beingness, our presence in the face of all this. Because the, the truth is, does it really matter if what we're looking at is a, a decimation of our habitat 100 years from now, or 80 years from now, or 60 years from now? Really does it matter? I, I think not. And I think what it really presses us to do is to get present now as if it were happening in the sooner timeline. Because I'm not assuming my timeline is right. Heck no. I don't, I'm not a scientist to know that. But I'm choosing a, a nearer timeline because it motivates me to be more present and have a better, sorry, my words, better presence with the people I love and with the earth. Yeah. yeah, well said that there's a, there's, a, there's a clarity and an urgency that comes 
and and that calls forth in us this uh, you know us being agents of humanity um, that we really are representatives of human consciousness yeah. and and that we get to actually ponder that that you and I are talking about that and hundreds of people are listening now and we're pondering wow what does this mean what is this about how does this move through my human beingness yeah exactly so I, I know we're probably coming up on the end of your segment here, Peter, and I, I would just like to give people an opportunity to, to get a hold of me if I've sparked anything uh, for you. Uh, there are so many projects getting started, and I would love the support of people who are kindred spirits if you want to, or if you have questions for what you know I'm doing. Um, putting together live trainings, like a day and a half, two days long, for people to go through this informed inquiry that I keep talking about. Similarly, there's some video trainings that are going to be backing that up uh, by end of year. And uh, if people want to get a hold of me, I'm, I'm actually Dean Spillane Walker. And um, you can reach me at my email address, which is safecircle, S-A-F-E, safecircle at gmail.com. And, um, you know, I've, I've got a website that is soon to be up called uh, www newhumanos.net. In other words, newhumanoperatingsystem.net. So I look forward to, to speaking more and more with kindred spirits from the Extinction Radio audience and from well beyond that. I'm hoping to reach an awful lot of folks that are not necessarily familiar with this conversation because it's coming at all of us equally quickly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing your contact information. And I encourage anyone to reach out to Dean. Uh, wealth of, of insight and wisdom and training. And, and like we talked about at the beginning, Dean is preparing a, a, a workshop for elders in one of the bigger men's group, men's movement programs uh, in, the, in the world. And so yeah. it's reaching into new areas, like you were saying. Yeah. You know, if there's a, a, an older man, say 40, 50 years old and older um, in the California, Southern Oregon area, uh, we're going to be running a, a three-day workshop in September uh, 18, 19, 20 here in 2015. And um, again, I just recommend, please give me a, uh, send me an email at safecircle at gmail.com and I'd be happy to get you all the information that you might like. And uh, Peter, it's just been a pleasure talking with you and pleasure, not a pleasure, but an odd kind of transition pleasure of uh, being one of the last things on Extinction Radio in this form. And let's both put our blessings out there for the next form to be more, even more powerful than they've been up till now. Terrific. Thank you. Glad to have you on board. Look forward to hearing more from you. And thank you again to all you uh, administrators and supporters of Extinction Radio. Until next time, Peter Melton signing off. Nanu, nanu. Hee-haw. Hello, everybody. It's your old pal, Benjamin the Donkey, back again with more Limericks of Doom. You know, I sometimes wonder, was it all worth it? A life without examination isn't worth it, per Socrates' citation, but I'm not persuaded it gets much upgraded by closer investigation. We'll die when our world gets too hot, leaving nothing, nil, zilch, diddly squat. What did we gain for all of our pain? Was it worth it? Maybe, maybe not. 
Is it worth it? The question is key. For some few, it sure seems to be. But probably for most, properly diagnosed, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Since we're all about to succumb, can we measure by some rule of thumb, was life inhumane? Was the gain worth the pain? It was fun while it lasted for some. The times are not pleasure anointed. Everything's fucked and disjointed. If I were to, let's say, not wake up the next day, I don't think I'd feel disappointed. Efforts to live may redouble, but still make our habitat rubble. There was more work than fun, and now that we're done, at least it's the end of the trouble. So was it worth it? For me, I'd say no, but as seer, till now we did not disappear, because joy outweighed cares for enough breeding pairs, or else we wouldn't be here. Well, that's all for now. Hee-haw! with Mike Farrigan for part two of our in-depth interview with author Stephen Jenkinson here on Extinction Radio FM. So, um, Stephen, is there any um, work of your, your own or work of Carolyn Baker's that you would recommend to people to take you towards uh, that path of, of what I think is really living in the now with the knowledge of, of that end? Um, is there any, any way um, you know, that we can spread this message far and wide, any specific guidance that you have in any of your books which you know, gives a kind of path towards that for people to, t- to go down in quite a, an easy fashion? Mm. Good question, but uh, as you might guess, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer because mm. I'm not really a path describing guy I'm I'm certainly not a a guy who prescribes methods and stages and phases and all of that thing I don't I don't trust that whole enterprise so I'd say I give you an a a piece of English etymology Mm -hmm. as as a response Mm -hmm. we have a word in English which come from partly from Greek and partly from the oldest layer of the Indo-European language base that we have the prefix is a Greek prefix, and um, it's spelled, transliterated into English, it would be C-A-T-A. That's the beginning. You already guessed what the word is. But the prefix from Greek is a, is a preposition, and it means it points you in a direction of down and in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of descent in the meaning of this word, kata, down, but also entering, as mm-hmm. if somehow the entrance to whatever it is we're talking about, is a bit subterranean or at least below the normal level of awareness and alertness and willingness, mm-hmm. which, which suggests that somehow you kind of have to be driven there. You're unlikely to, to proceed in that direction uh, 
by your own will. And the second part of the word is shows up now. Um, the only people who use the word at all are studying like medieval music manuscripts and so on. So it's a very arcane word. Um, and it's S-T-R-O-P-H-E, strophe. And um, it actually doesn't mean a piece of um, poetry, a line of poetry or, or a, um, a musical phrase. The older meaning comes from weaving, from the actual acts of weaving. And it means in, in, the, in the British Isles, they use the verb to plait. We don't use this word in North America, but P-L-A-I-T, which means to braid or to weave. Right, and so you put these two words together, and of course the word is catastrophe. And catastrophe actually means this: it is a path that has been made by people who went down and into the irreducible mysteries of being human and being alive in this world. And the path is something that they wove together by virtue of their descent. Right. When it's your yeah. turn. When it's your turn, you're not going to see all these people, okay? Because it's the nature of going down and into these mysteries that you do so in large measure alone, okay? So the aloneness can be very um, crucifying uh, in the short term. Uh, it, you can seek all kinds of solace, any kind of distinct uh, uh, distraction uh, from feeling that kind of isolation. But it seems to be required for that kind of entry, but the, the other half of the story is, but you, you, there is something you can follow. The aloneness is actually way overstated because there's a kind of a, a human pattern uh, that precedes you that goes down and into these kind of mysteries. I think the time that we're in is absolutely catastrophic in that sense, mm -hmm. meaning that this is not the first time that humans in different parts of the world have faced... Um, immense consequence as a result of what they've done and have failed to do. Um, you know, the Middle East is a very good example. One of the most blighted places on earth, not only, not only uh, politically, but ecologically blighted. And if you study the history of Mesopotamia and Sumer and so on, you begin to learn why it's a consequence of human behavior. All the places where the earth is pretty blasted can be traced to us overdoing it. Too many of us yes. in one place, all those kinds of things. So we're mm -hmm. in another one of those times. This is a little more um, widespread probably than all the other ones have been. Uh, but, but I think in character, it's not appreciably different. People have gone down into the great sorrows of being alive before. We, we should learn from them. And there's an Irishman who probably has at least as much to say about this and more skillfully said than anything I have to say, and his name's Samuel Beckett. And he, he mm -hmm. wrote a book. I'm not sure the book is actually penetrable, but, but the t book title is extravagantly brilliant. And his title is, I Can't Go On, I'll Go On. This is the prescription for our time, it seems to me. If you, if you think about the title for a second, it seems that these two things cancel each other out, and it sounds like a feel-good story. But that's not actually what he says at all. I can't go on is true, isn't it? And it's mm -hmm. true personally at different times of one's life. And it may be true more collectively as time comes on. I can't go on is a true thing. And the mm -hmm. rest of his book title doesn't say, but I'll go on or still I'll go on or yet. 
He simply says, I can't go on, I'll go on, meaning both of these things are true at the same time. And I think people who have a, a deep conscience on the matters that we've been talking about will c somehow cultivate the following skill, that is, be going on, not being able to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, I, that's what I think grief, as I mean it, that's what it really conjures, is this, this kind of irreducible and unsought skill of being utterly devastated, um, utterly wrecked on schedule, mm -hmm. and proceeding accordingly. And I think that's what uh, our times are asking of us. Yeah, um, I think I think um, you're definitely right there. When I, when I when I was saying going down a path, I, I was more meaning that you're providing the inspiration. You're you seem to me to, to be a very wise guy. Uh, you've written a lot of books. Um, you've done a film, or maybe done more than one film for all for all I know. And you do a lot of presentations. Uh, so you give people um, the ability. Um, to engage with um, living in the now and coming to terms with things like death and grief, indeed. Mm. And uh, I said the word grief because that's Mern's next question, isn't it, Mern? I, I don't even know what my next question is. I am so engaged by what Stephen is right, saying. Well, I'll, I'll ask, I'll ask <laughs> but, it then. Can I ask one? Can I ask? I know what I'd like my next question to be, and I want to kind of Go put a it. couple of Go for it, together. Yeah. Go for it. Okay? Yeah. 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 Um, so one of my most favorite um, excerpts from your talks is the one from the grief and climate change. Oh yeah, since last year, right? I could I could have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was that was in Vancouver, right? right? And it you say a number of wonderful things in that, but one of the things that you that you speak about is. Um, this mis this issue of the misanthropy, and you have touched on it, but I would like to, to speak about it again because it's a big concern uh, of mine. Because when people first start looking seriously at um, the probability or possibility of human extinction as a result of, of industrial civilization and our own activities on the planet, they often go to a place of very deep misanthropy, yeah. rage, self-loathing. Yes. Um, they want to, um, I don't know, it's its a hard place. It's a hard yes. place. True. I heard you speaking about that, and I heard you say that, um, you know, this is a kind of a, um, a self-indulgence. It's I, I think it's an outcome, I think I see it as you do, that it's an outcome of the culture we live in. And I wondered if you'd talk about how this, sort of hyper-individualism perhaps is a, is a way to talk about it of our culture, mm. how this failure to look, to look at this failure to look at the other two legs of the stool that's encouraged it. In our culture, we're just encouraged to try and stand on one leg, you know? It's true. Self, 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 maybe family. Um, and how this, it seems to me, is deeply connected with the pathology around fear of death. This you know, sort of terror of being dead. Um, I wondered if you could t talk a little bit more about that because it's a big concern for me. Yeah. I think people could use some help. <laughs> Pardon me again. Um, okay, I'll, uh, let's see if I can have another go. Um, I mentioned that, that word Anthropocene a little while back. Mm -hmm. I think this self-loathing 
is an in, is a characteristic of the Anthropocene era. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the irony of it is that our concern about our own well being is the enemy of that well being. Mm-hmm. Is the undoing of that well being. That's the crazy irony of it. Just like the American insistence on family values is killing families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it assumes that somehow families are the like the irreducible building block of culture. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, that's way too much to ask of individual families, and that's why they're they're crushed under the weight of a of the culture failure in North America. See? And why so many marriages can't survive and all the rest of it. So the alternative is not self hatred. This is not this is not wisdom at work. You see, it's not like you finally get it when you can't <laughs> bear people, although a lot of people can prompt you in that direction, God knows. So uh, I think the um the the kind of extinction um that that we began talking about mm-hmm. has actually already occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the particular extinction I'm thinking of now is the one I came to two thirds of the way through Diewise, where I was trying to answer a doctor's question: How did this, you know, this enormous fear of dying come into the world at all? That's what he wanted to know: this death phobia. What's its what's its deep origin? And I I come to be persuaded that it. Um, it's the possibility of non-existence, which is why I'm responding so strongly to the word extinction. Mm-hmm. So the non-existence I'm talking about is not a philosophical concept. Uh, the non-existence I'm talking about is stronger than a rumor, and it, took, it has taken the following form. And I'm glad we're speaking transatlantically because this is exactly the rupture I want to refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, the beautiful foreword that was written to Die Wise was written by an Englishman named Martin Shaw. And in this thing, it's about about three and a half pages long, and it's quite elaborate in its way. In this, he stops in the middle of his his tirade, and it's like he looks up from the paper and he says, and he literally writes this down, he says, "To, to we who stayed, who are you who left? By which he means, he's, 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 he's wondering about the consequences of the mass migration that resulted in, quote, America. Not the United States, but the g- greater understanding of what America is to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a consequence of this kind of mass, somewhat hysterical, um, irrevocable rupture that took place in people who were basically European origin, but whose origins the loss of those origins was the first consequence of their departure. When they got here, they had this haunted look that you can still see in the old immigrant photographs when people got off those boats. Uh, you know, these two-year-old kids look as haunted as their grandfathers were holding their hands do. It's extraordinary to see it. And these mm-hmm. people are the founders of America as we understand it. Mm-hmm. By which I'm telling you this. I think that the enormous distress over the possibility of disappearing is not a generic human concern. Not by any stretch of the term is it. It's a particular consequence of kinds of cultural collapse. And the kind of mass flight from Europe was one of those collapses. 
when it's taught in school now, at least over here, it's always taught as as a victory story, as a hero story about people seeking freedom and 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 all of that nonsense, you know. And in truth, these people were running as far as away as they could, as fast as they could, from what was killing them and and consuming them. And the irony is that everything they tried to flee, they brought with them. And that's what America is. America is a European fantasy, uh, which mm-hmm. is still it's still in collapse. It still hasn't fallen over yet. When you think of that image of those twin towers falling over, we're still in the early stage of that implosion that mm-hmm. was begun when those people were, were uh, coming across the, the Middle Passage, as it was called. What's this got to do with your question? I think this. When people came over here and turned into me and you where you are, um, mm-hmm. what they did was they lost their capacity to live a real ancestry that claims them, that informs their days, and that they will rejoin when they die. Yep. Okay, so we are, by virtue of being um, horrifically efficient uh, immigrants and refugees, uh, the consequence of that is, has been something I've characterized this way. I live very close to a, a, a big Aboriginal community just at the other end of the lake here. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, I've been asked to um, appear in these communities and wonder aloud with them about the, some of the things that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make me an expert, but from that comes what I'm about to say to you now. <clears throat> Aboriginal people on this continent wake up every day in the presence of what they lost when the likes of me came over here. Okay. Now, people who look like me on this continent wake up every day in the absence of what we lost by coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure who lives the greater devastation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Stephen. Well, um, It's, it's quite a hard act to follow, Stephen. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm going to attempt to. Um, there's, I've got something written down here that I'm going to read out, um, and I believe it, it came from uh, it came from one of your one of your talks or presentations. Okay. Um, the one that, the one that Bern, uh, I think referred to, mm-hmm. and she she um, she she was saying that um, you're asking us to be hope free, and you pre- prescribe grief instead can you say a little bit more about that <laughs> sure um <clears throat> yeah this this earns me a lot of adversaries immediately <laughs> not in our community Stephen. you <laughs> see you're you're if this is very at home for us <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they, i'm not sure if that gives me the willies or not though to be honest <laughs> if i'm being, being embraced by extinctionists i don't know i don't know what no the thing about it thing about it steve that you may not have clearly understood is that we're we are actually a support group yeah right um, we're not just an extinctionist group. Um, I'm joking. I'm joking, you man. Yeah, I'm yeah, we are. We are a support group, and you know, yeah. your your wisdom and Carolyn Baker's wisdom is a very important part of that support that we provide to people. So, well, so anyway, to answer the question, hope free, uh, hope free. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> go. I think it goes something like this. Yeah. When I I learned about hope from being at all those deathbeds, I saw. How many dying people were obliged to be hopeful dying? Mm -hmm. And then I started to wonder what it was doing to them. 
not what the content of what they were hoping for, but the consequence of being hopeful at all. And no one could ever speak about this with me because hope is kind of like the water everyone was swimming in. So it was it was never an object of anybody's curiosity. It was if it was absent, then it was invoked, and if it was present, then it was um, admired, and that's mm -hmm. how it went. You see, mm -hmm. and they just they just went back and forth between hopeless and hopeful, and reconstituted hope, and then lost hope again, and back and forth until the end. <clears throat> I thought to myself, well, look, if this is all it's cracked up to be, why is it so easy to lose? And why is losing it such a disaster? And why mm -hmm. is reclaiming it always the promised land? And and what's with these five stages? And God damn it, it it can't be. This can't be um, what everybody pretends that it is. So I started to wonder what the consequence of being hopeful was for people. Who's got the cat? <laughs> That's my cat. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously interested in hope. The cat is. <laughs> So this is what I this is what I believe that I ended up seeing, that that hope has the consequence of alienating everyone who is engaged in the hope project from the capacity to live utterly in the present moment. And the best parallel I can draw is the consequence of having a mortgage. A mortgage, as most of us are aware, has the disastrous consequence of persuading you that if you give up a lot of your present you'll have some kind of glorious future called owning your house or mm -hmm. things of that kind. It functions exactly like the idea of heaven, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That if you forego a lot of the current yep. things, and eventually the payday will come. Yeah. That's exactly how hope functions. If you think about it temporally, you realize hope is, is in its very character hostile to the present. Yeah. Nobody ever says something like, gee, I hope I'm here. Yeah. See, which, which would be, I mean, it's it's logically nonsense because if you're hoping you're here, clearly you are kind of thing. So by which I'm saying nobody hopes for what they have. Yeah. Nobody hopes to yeah. be where they are <laughs> so, because that's a given now. Yeah. So all hope is future oriented. Yeah. All hope is, is it declares that the future in its current incarnation is not good enough. It doesn't warrant your attention or your devotion and you should be... Um, affixed to what might yet be. And, uh, you know, the language of potential is exactly the same kind of language. If you were told in school you're not living up to your potential, you are entering into the spell of hopefulness. Yeah. So it's a terrible disaster. So, so as an alternative, I coined that phrase, hope-free, which means you have no obligation to, um, <clears throat> to hold out for a better day and hold your breath until it comes. Yeah. You do have an obligation to work towards it, yes, but when will you do so? The answer is not in the future. <laughs> you want to work towards a better day, you have to do it now. Yeah. See, not there Absolutely. is no future for this to happen in. The yeah. work has it's to happen in the present. And the present moment is the home for all our hopes for what can be. And if they all get planted now, then it's not hope anymore, is it? It's called mm. living in the time that you've been granted. I don't think the fact that the three of us are alive in an extremely troubled time is just chaos and chance and an accident. I think that we were, you know, we've been lent, if you will, by the makers of life, 
to a particularly troubled and tormented corner of the world in a pretty bad time. I think you can make the case from that to say that we are in some fashion needed. In some fashion, our particular wrinkles are needed. Uh, our, our obligation is to find out what the nature of that need, neededness is. My way of saying it is for years, I don't know, for several generations now, at least in North America, we've been proceeding as needy people. Hence all the whole self-improvement industry, all the therapy, all the talk show radio, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that we're not needy. I'm just saying, how's it working so far after several generations for us to be proceeding, trying to get our needs met in this world? Turn, turning every aspect of human life into a need gratification machine. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not working. And the principal afflictions of our time can be traced in part to that kind of mania. So my response, and this is the parallel to being hope-free, is to say, needy or not, our obligation today is to proceed as needed people, even though you're not really going to have much upfront evidence that that's true. Mm -hmm. That means you have to take it upon yourself almost as a, in a way that looks from the outside arrogant and self-appointed, which I've been accused of many, many times and probably guilty on both counts. But uh, I probably waited too long uh, to get a strong signal from the world around me that my particular wrinkles were mandatory uh, in the current regime. And so I just decided that they were. And it doesn't really make me important at all. It just make me it obliges me to show up for duty, yeah. which I think is both what both of you said earlier is can be a consequence of the things that you guys are concerned about. In which case, I think we're somehow mysteriously kin the three of us yeah. and the people that we're speaking to now. Yeah, That's yes, well said, Stephen. Exactly. Yes, well said. I'm going to ask you one uh, last question because. Uh, we're, as usual, well over our time. Right. Uh, well, well, we're well over the hour, but I'm going to leave the whole interview up anyway. Um, well, this is a good paying gig, though, right? So it's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't pay us very well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hope for too much uh, there you go. from this, uh, um, Stephen. Now, I'm going to ask you one question which could probably go on forever, which, yes. which Peter Melton in our last interview was talking about was um, after um, what we know as um, the, the death of the physical body, um, or what appears to us to be the death of the physical body, do you, um, with your experience and, and your, your vast knowledge and, and wisdom, um, do you, is there anything for you that you believe that exists after death in terms of some kind of consciousness? Mm -hmm. Well... Um you know, the, the safe thing to say was would be, I don't know, really. Right, but yeah. um, but, I, but I'd, I'd still hazard a kind of um, a yearning, and it would be this. Right. Uh, usually the phrase, and I was hoping you were going to say it, but you didn't say it, so I'll, I'll provide it. Thank Normally you. I'm, at, I'm at the phrase, life after death shows up. Yeah. Right? Or afterlife. Yeah. And, um, and I think about the phrase afterlife, and it actually doesn't make any sense to me at all. No, it doesn't to me. Because, because, okay, you got life. Then life includes what? Well, it includes everything. Yeah. Okay, so if life includes everything, what is after everything? <laughs> Isn't that part of the everything? Of yeah. course it is. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's no... I mean, obviously there's endings of all kinds when you stop breathing. 
and uh, and and a lot of them are pretty devastating. And you know, a lot of the world's religions are very concerned with helping um, its adherents, their adherents, excuse me, uh, to guiding them in those very moments, as if there's a considerable amount of things that are at stake right in that period of time when you can be quote dead and not know it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, a lot of religions are fairly clear that the idea of of a ghost is, I just described it, is a person, a dead person who whose death has been lost to them, who uh, who has been, they've misplaced their own death, if you will. So all of that is to say maybe, uh, could it be that um, one of the principal responsibilities that living people have is to come to their dying time with a kind of devotional alertness, a devout kind of um, uh, inquiry that um, that you know much of their life has been given to, uh, such that what? Such that they make sure they don't go to hell or the Buddhist equivalent? Or no, I don't think that's it. I don't. I don't think that that the hell question enters into it. I think it's more like this: Who dies? What's what's the prerequisite for dying? And the answer is, well, you have to have been alive. And let's grant right now that, alas, it's very possible that being alive is not inevitable. That it's more like an accomplishment or an achievement than it is an inevitability. I mean, how else to understand that most of the intact cultures in the world, such as they are now, they they practice some form of human making in the form of rites of passage and so on. Why did they do that? Uh, because being human is not inevitable. That's why. So if being a human is not inevitable, it's an achievement instead. I would say being alive is not inevitable either. And it's not it's not a synonym with drawing breath, right? And taking up room in the world. That aliveness should be... We, we have to begin to uh, reapproach this as an obligation we have to the world and to our own pulse and to our own awareness. That being alive is an obligation. It's not a, it's not a default reality for us. Mm-hmm. That it's actually something to be achieved, and we've been granted the chance, you know, and that we've been spared up until this moment uh, to come to this over and over again, not just once, but over and over again in the course of our lives, and as we age in different fashions, according to uh, a, you know deepened awarenesses and 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 you know disastrous experiences and all the rest. And all of these should come to be brought to bear in our dying time, such such that our dying should be an incarnation and an expression of all that we have learned and achieved. If it's that, then every death before our own is what? It's our chance to get it right. That's what. It's our chance to get a PhD in the way it is. That's what every death before our own is, which is why private deaths are the are the most disastrous kind there are, because it it turns everyone out of the hall of learning the deep things, no, and um, and they're very isolated, and they're very lonely enterprises. The best deaths I ever saw were the ones that were uh, messy, that were um, turned outwards, not turned inwards, that were somehow somehow. Um, gathered a lot of people to them, though nobody was ever sure really what to do. Mm. Uh, so that's what I mean by messy. And if you take this 
uh, and apply it to the question that you've asked, I can't, well, speaking as somebody who was visited, who had Christmas visited upon him for many years as a kid, uh -huh. this is maybe the best parallel I can draw. Right. There was a lot of um, drama around Christmas when I was a kid, and uh, it was a lot of theater. <laughs> and the form it took was that you had to stay in bed or at least upstairs uh, on Christmas morning until the parents got up and you were allowed to come downstairs and see the ridiculous bounty that awaited you. And I can tell you, I sat at the top of the stairs at maybe 4 or 4.30 in the morning for several years in a row with a degree of raw excitement and <laughs> sheer glee at being alive that threatened to split my sternum from side to side. I honestly... God, it was that strong that I wasn't sure that my chest yeah. cavity could contain it all. Yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah. Okay. Me too. So, and hopefully other people in the world don't require Christmas to have the similar experience, and yeah. I'm sure they don't. Yeah. This is to say, then, that I think I've had a visceral, physical experience that this body of mine can sometimes barely contain what it's been entrusted with. And then I assume there'll come a day when it won't be able to. I don't know what to call all that. I don't pretend to know the architecture of it all. But I have intimation that this is true now uh, without being visited by my death, per se, you see, even though I've glimpsed it a few times. But it, but the sheer kind of life, um, I was going to say rage, but I guess that's not the right word, but this kind of life appetite. You know, life is extremely habit-forming. No, it's it's it can be remarkably compelling. Uh, to be alive and you know we forget this at our considerable um, yeah. uh, um, diminishment I guess so maybe maybe we could say this we don't need to know the day the moment and the date of our death if we did we'd probably go mad so the fact that we don't know has some mercy in it I mm -hmm. think it yeah. doesn't ask too much of us we, we're allowed to know that we're going to die but we're not really allowed to know when. And maybe there's an immense kindness in there that's part of the fabric of life. And by the same token, if we don't really know what's to become of us, or if there is such a thing as us after dying, maybe there's some mercy in that. And, and maybe being alive is really all the proving ground, all the training ground that you need to be able to um, show up for duty uh, in whatever the next time around looks like, whether it's reincarnation or no incarnation or you turn into a leaf, I don't know what the deal is, but but this is um, but this gives us a great chance to imagine that this is not what we're living right now is not incidental to those days and those times to come, and maybe they're related somehow, and maybe if we were willing to proceed, they are, maybe they will be. Right. Well, fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and I, I, I'm similar to you. I'm in a kind of, I don't know category in terms of uh, once the physical body has gone, um, I really don't know. But it reminds me. I don't know if you, uh, you must know George Harrison. Surely. He he wrote a song called "The Art of Dying." Oh. Um, and it's a beautiful song. It's off his album "All Things Must Pass," a double album. Yes. Um, and uh, it just reminded me of that song, uh, The Art of Dying. And that's uh -huh. uh, what you've just reminded me of. It's The Art of Dying is part of life itself. And 
part of the, the the whole thing, and there doesn't necessarily have to be anything after that at all. You know. Well, can I give you a George story back then? Yeah, go. Oh, this mm-hmm. is a good one. Now, after he died, they had his. You know, he had American uh, wife at the end of his life there, mm. and she was on a talk show. Uh, and I and I happened to accidentally find her, and here here the guys asking her. So, how did George die anyway? She said, "Well, you know, he's that lifelong meditation practitioner, and so on." And we had a lot of advance notice, so so it went quite well. And then she stopped, and you see this another remembrance come across her face, and she said, "But he did say something just a couple of weeks before he died mm-hmm. that was really un-George-like. It was very harsh." And the guy said, "What was that?" And she said, "He looked up at me, and he said, 'If you if you wait until you're dying to get to know God.'" There's such a thing as too late. Right. Now, I think that's somebody reporting from the trenches, you know. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's that's reliable testimony right there. I think it yeah. is. I think it is. And I think it is, it's also outlines a lot of the time why people become quite uh, religious in a sort of quasi way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when they're approaching death, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have to live now. And experience God or godliness or goodliness mm-hmm. right now, here and now. And mm-hmm. on that point, um, <clears throat> I'm going to end the interview. Um, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Stephen, having you on. And I'd really love to have you on again. Would you be up for that? But you don't. You don't mean have me on in the English sense. You're not having me on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm having you on about having you on. No, I'm not having you on about having you on. No, but one one thing I did want to say. It's not uh, actually plate. And you mentioned the word plate. It's plat. Plat, yes. Plat, yeah. We we yeah. have plats in our hair. Yeah, um, you lost the eye. I don't know why you don't pronounce the eye there, but anyway, it's mysterious. Well, I'm not sure where it came from. I think it was our word first, so um, I'm not Thank sure you. about that. So we'll we'll stick with plat. I think you probably mm-hmm. changed it to plate. We had a discussion how how Mern uses the word herb. Which has an H on the front of it last week, you know, and it's Herb. Um, so, um, yeah, we but Herb have... is the guy's name here. It's not the name of a plant. <laughs> well, That's there you go. Right. But thank you, thank you so much uh, for being on, Stephen. And I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people with your definite words of wisdom uh, today on Extinction Radio. Um, and thank you, Mern, for being the co-host. Thanks both. Thank you're you too. Welcome. Thank, thank you, you for imagining you. that there's something I might have come up with that could be of some, you know, tra- transient use to somebody. Hopefully that's true. There certainly has been a lot that you've come up with to give people a pause for thought and potentially pause for action and change in their lives. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I'd like you to come on again sometime, please, Stephen. Well, bless us then. Let's try. Yeah, let's do it again, mate.
State College since about 2012, and during that time I've been fed the IPCC reports. Uh, once you added in the methane, uh, it, it didn't make sense, and the other feedbacks, it didn't make sense. So I was very skeptical of what I was getting. Talking to my boss about being on time, things I do wrong, hey, I want to take a vacation, circulated contained elements of surveys that I borrowed from other researchers at Yale University. One of them was the Global Warming's Six Americas survey, which divides the United States into six categories of climate change belief. The, the most convinced uh, are are called the alarmed uh, mm -hmm. and then the concerned are a little less a little less convinced um, then the cautious then the disengaged who don't even really participate in the conversation that's just what it sounds like uh, then the mm -hmm. doubtful uh, mm -hmm. and finally the dismissive the dismissive are the opposite of the alarmed oh. And you're saying that we didn't fall into the alarmed category? No, um, I, I assumed that we would, and we did in many ways. In fact, we were we were sort of the uh, we were the extreme edge of the alarmed. We were as yes. far to the left on the, <laughs> and it is it goes from left to right, from alarmed to dismissive on the right. Um, and we were the, the far, far edge of the alarmed, where the, the alarmed demographics show that it, they're predominantly Democrats. Um, the dismissive, uh, uh, yeah, the dismissive show that they are primarily Tea Party Republicans. Right. Um, but... <laughs> I've come to refer to us as the doomed. So the doomed are yeah. predominantly no political party or green. Uh -huh. 
or green? Green or no political party? Mm-hmm. So we're we're as far to the radical edge of the alarmed as we could be, and as um, and but not in every category. Oh, so so you're you're like a seventh category. I'm suggesting that there's a seventh category, the doomed, and mm-hmm. because on the question of whether humans can stop global warming, right? The dismissive, like twenty nine percent of the dismissive, say no, humans can't stop global warming. Right. Thirty two percent of the doomed say, no, we can't stop global warming. Obviously. That's why we're right. all here. That's right. But only 1% of the alarmed say that. That was enough for me to say, yeah, this is a different group. Sometimes. You know, I've heard people say lately, um, lots of different people in our community actually saying lately that they sort of have no truck at all to do with actual climate change deniers anymore, as, as they're, they're called frequently, right? Or in, in this category, they would be the dismissal, right? Uh-huh. Or the skeptical, is that right? The dismissive. Mm-hmm. So we, although people in our community tend to give up talking to the dismissive, most of them, but lately I've heard a lot of people talking about a kind of anger it's a new kind of frustration, a new kind of anger that's coming up for people in our community. And the anger is against the people who would be, I guess, in this category of alarm. They take climate change very seriously. They follow the research and the science closely. But they tend to, um, I don't know, it seems to me they don't do the work to put the different pieces together. And I think that's what I hear you saying you did. And that's certainly what Guy McPherson did. And I and and I think most of the people in our community have in some way or another done that already themselves and then come to our community and the whole process is enriched, right? So we're weaving all these different threads of different research from so many different disciplines together and we're talking about all of it. Right, so we have a, a much more, it seems to me, kind of global understanding of the situation, and than most of the alarmed have. Right, and I know from our side of the fence, it looks like because we have this different this understanding, they are lacking information, and that's why they're still alarmed, and they still think that humans can intervene and fix the situation. Right. Yeah, many of the alarmed haven't been at it as long as we have. Another thing I discovered from my research is the group that I polled has been active in the environmental movement for 10, 20, 30 years. Wow. They're older people. Mm Mm-hmm. They're older people, and they're people who have been fighting and fighting and fighting on the front lines, and therefore they get to see all that research. Right. They were reading Limits to Growth in the 70s. Right. You know, these people have been expecting it. It's not a shock. Uh, But some of the newer people are, and some of the alarmed are young people 
mm-hmm. who are alarmed at what they hear, even the little bit of information that does get out about climate change. Oh no, uh, we're talking about two degrees. We got to stop it. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, even like, oh no. Assessment, Roblin. Even the IPCC assessment assessment says four to six, and everywhere I see by twenty one hundred, right? That's the projection on the business as usual trajectory, which we are actually exceeding at the moment. And yet, every time I see it reported, it is underreported. It is reported as four degrees. Worst case scenario, four degrees. I mean, even the IPCC says worst case scenario, four to six. And then you can occasionally get people admitting that we're on a trajectory even worse than the worst case scenario the IPCC has examined. So yeah. I had an outburster. That's okay. Annoyance. <laughs> I love your annoyed outbursts. That's one of the things I love about you. So, so there's a sense of alienation then. They've, so the only place to lump us in this Yale category is with the alarmed. And in fact, there's a tremendous amount of tension right now between the doomed, as you're calling us, and the alarm. There's a, a fight going on, right? There is. There's a, a, a real disgust with Pollyannas, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. And, did you, I mean, you covered some some different psychological um, issues and some of the writing from eco-psychology in your thesis as well. And I found actually that section, reading that section of the paper, was really helpful for me in in sort of re-examining my own process and seeing where I'm sitting now with all of this, right? Paying attention to where am I still angry and what am I still angry about, right? And one of the things that make me angry, as you just heard, <laughs> All right. One of the things that makes me angry, I think, like you as well, is that this story is not getting out in the mainstream media. And the other thing that makes me angry is that um, people who I feel, quote unquote, should know better, right, um, seem to be unwilling or unable to connect the dots. And I would, I even have a name. These are the Gavin Schmitz ah, of yes. the climate community. These are the people who have all the information coming across their desk. It's the head of NASA now, for goodness sake. So yeah, so you know, I found your paper instructive, but let's just, for the sake of it, let's play with it. And why don't you, like, tell me, what's that about? What's my, what's my Gavin Schmidt anger about? Is this, I, because I think it, it's got something to do with that attachment theory that you talk about in the paper. Well, I'm not a psychologist. I gotta say that um, I'm a filmmaker and media producer, <laughs> um, right. but I have studied psychology and I have researched the topic. And um, you know, my my bachelor's is in media psychology, so I can talk a little bit about that. Um, right. Attachment theory is fascinating, and. Um, I want to thank Bud Nye from the Tacoma Extinction Support Group for introducing the group to 
attachment theory and how it relates to our anger at Mother Earth for abandoning us. Yeah. And dying and leaving She's a bad us. Mama. She's a bad mama. She's taking away the breast. Bad mama, take a booby away. Yeah. So whether we're angry at her or guilty mm. about it or, or just sad, uh, a, attachment theory sort of postulates that when we feel abandoned, uh, it's called a weak attachment. When we have a weak attachment to whoever we have relationships with, whether it be our parents, of course, the, the primal child parent mm -hmm. parental relationship is the most damaging. Um, mm -hmm. But if we have weak attachment with anyone, our lovers, our friends, or even the planet, uh, it can bring up feelings of, of anger. Uh, it can make us clingy and desperate acting. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can, it can affect people so deeply that they decide they don't want to be attached to anyone or anything and they can pull back and, and have a fear of closeness. That's another one. That you just reminded me. I'm sorry, sorry, continue. No, that's all I had to say on it. Yeah. You just reminded me of another aspect of your research that I think um, people are really going to want to hear about. Because you actually asked people in that survey if they'd lost personal relationships over this NTHE issue, and you asked them, you know, did they have a person that they could speak to face to face about this, or were they? exclusively communicating online about this. So can you, can you just talk a little about your findings in that regard? I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, about 80% of my respondents had um, family members with whom they could not discuss near-term human extinction. I thought it was one-third. Nope, 80%. Awesome. Okay. had family members, some member of their family, that they could not discuss it with. That, that was just at a, least one member of the family, that's what you're saying. Right, at least one member of their family to whom it was a taboo subject. Right. 30% um, had lost personal relationships, that's what you're thinking of. 30% had lost... Uh -huh personal relationships due to their um, due to their conclusion about near-term human extinction. And 15% had no no one else to talk to other than online support. Because right. nobody in their personal face-to-face -face existence was willing to listen to them on this or speak. That's right. I guess this, this is why Carolyn Baker spends a lot of time talking about this issue, about how to communicate and how to deal with family members who, who just can't listen anymore or just don't want to hear it in the first place. Yeah. Have you had experiences like that, Robin? you had any relationships threatened by this? 
Um, luckily my whole family has been great. Um, my older brother kind of poo-poos it, but he hasn't shut me out. He kind of mm -hmm. laughs at me the way he does about other things that I say. Like, right. like when, when I told him, no, the Christians really usurped Christmas away from the pagans. Yeah. In order to, in order to subvert our culture. He, oh, he didn't believe that one minute. I said, what do they teach you in law school? <laughs> what, they don't teach the pagan origins of Christian holidays in law school, Roblin? What the hell? It explains so much about what's wrong in the world. <laughs> it does. Um, and, and then, uh, when I told him about NTHE, I explained everything, and at the end of it, he just said, Oh, <laughs> they'll figure out how to grow food. <laughs> like, it's not that hard. Right. 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 Don't you have a culture certificate, Roblin? <laughs> yeah. So I guess you kind of already know a little bit. I, can, I guess food. I'll be able to figure out how to grow food. <laughs> my ass. The world as we know it will come to an end. I hope you had your fun. Watching pop culture. Getting in the stupor. Being distracted. Got the latest fashion. So I'll say, um, unless you're done, yeah, are we done? Because if we're done, we can just end it. I don't feel done. We haven't talked okay. about the editing group or anything, but you okay. see what, like, when you edit, you're going to know if we're done, like how much there is and what you think, right? I, I would still really like to cover some other material you wanna, with that's you. That's fine. We can like, keep doing it. Yeah, we can come back. Okay, so just, just say whatever you were going to say. There's so much more we haven't talked about around your life and also even information on your thesis project. So, Robin, I want to really thank you for being uh, my first interview subject on my own. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Mern. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to welcome to Extinction Radio, Derek Jensen. What has kind of come to light since a lot of us have been listening to Guy McPherson's synopsis of uh, the potentials before us um, is that very great potential that 460 nuclear power plants are going to melt down when industrial civilization finally does collapse and um, and that's going to kill a lot a lot more people so 
Uh, well, I don't actually think that's true. I was just okay. actually talking to a nuclear physicist over the weekend, uh -huh. um, somebody who works on nuclear issues a lot, and most of the uh, the nuclear power plants are not the Chernobyl style, and they're created such that if there is catastrophic failure, they drop. They don't. They don't generally. Do Fukushima was an exception in that um, the tidal wave took out the. Uh, Pick out the backup systems, which are supposed to shut it down. And besides which, when the grid goes down, it's not going to go down like boom, boom, out go the lights. Like, um, what was that movie a few years ago with um, The Day the Earth Stood Still? It's not going to go out like that. What it'll do is just become increasingly sporadic. And I want to say one more thing, too, about the whole nuclear thing, which is, yes, I understand that the creatures are irradiated at Chernobyl, but there are multiple wolf packs there. And... There are, um, there, I would rather have irradiated wolves than none at all. Okay. That the, there is, in the 450-some dead zones in the ocean, there is only one that has recovered. And the reason it recovered is because when the Soviet Union collapsed, it became no longer um, economically feasible to do agriculture along that part of the Black Sea. And it's only taken 20-some years, and the black and the, the, the dead zone has recovered enough that they even have a commercial fishery there. So my point is that, yes, bad things will happen, and I wish that we were sane and that we were decommissioning nuclear power plants using current oil energy to decommission nuclear power plants. But we all know that's not what's happening. And so every day that passes is every day that the, work, that the Earth is weaker and less capable to stand cataclysms. Every day that passes is that much less resilience there is. And that's my fundamental understanding. That's where DGR comes from. That's where my book Endgame came from. Is just the understanding that the Earth is getting weaker because of the actions of the biosphere is becoming weaker every day. And the sooner this whole mess is over, the better it is for the planet. What are my thoughts on near-term human extinction? I, I mean, define near-term. If near-term is 100 years, yeah. I don't think there's much of a chance humans are going to survive 100 years at this rate. Right. I don't know about 15 years. Um, you know, and, and Guy could convince me it's 15 years. And I, I want to be clear. I'm not criticizing Guy on this. Sure. I, I love Guy, and I love his work. And I just don't know. I don't know if it will be that quick. 